of our Sunday school series. Caleb has spent the last several weeks talking about our duty to pursue unity with each other in the local church. And now we're coming to the commands we see in the New Testament of service. The commands we find to serve one another and understanding what that means for us in our responsibilities to each other in this local church. Um, well, Lord willing, and we'll see if we change our minds as we go, but we'll have the idea of three lessons here. The one today, I've titled The Priority of Growing in the Grace and Knowledge of Our Lord Jesus Christ in Service. Uh, the next one, we'll be looking at spiritual gifts and trying to understand what the Bible says and what we may be wrong about what we think it says. And then the last one, we'll actually look at the varied commands of service and how we might apply them. So, just to begin, where, where do we get the idea that we are commanded to serve each other? Might be good to begin here. Because if we can't find where we're commanded to serve each other, then we're kind of done already. But Pastor Caleb? John 13. Yes. And we have his example there. And he does command his disciples to do this for one another. And we take that to mean to follow his example in service. There are some explicit commands to serve one another. Anything come to mind? It might be, but I have Galatians 5. Um, Galatians five thirteen through 14 For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Explicit command to serve one another. Um, I think we can look at James here. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. For James, pure and undefiled religion involves service. Service is inseparable from it. 1 Peter 4, 7-11, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There's service. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So hopefully, we've at least established we're commanded to do this. And we can go on from this corporate understanding. We are commanded to serve one another. And before we begin really diving into what it means to serve one another and what gifts God gives for service, we want to talk about this priority of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ in service. And to kind of begin, I want to ask, um, well, let me put it, give you an axiom, I think that's the right word, spiritual uh, giftedness 
or what we perceive as spiritual giftedness does not equal spiritual vitality. The idea that someone is talented in what they're doing for the church does not mean everything's okay in the heart. So I'm just beginning with that premise. Now, I want to ask you, what examples might we find in Scripture of people doing even miraculous things, yet we know that it is not well with their heart, it is not well with their soul? And there, I think we have multiple examples. Balaam. Balaam. Yes. Balaam is able to prophesy. He's able to bless. God speaks to him directly. He's called to curse. He evidently has this ability, but it is not well with his soul. He is an enemy of God's people. He is an enemy of God. And so this ability is not a marker of spiritual health. Yes, yes. When you look at Matthew 10, verses 5 and 8 through 8, these twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Jesus is among, or Judas is among these twelve. And as Pastor Caleb and I were talking, it would seem weird to think that Judas is the only one of the twelve that's incapable of doing these things that the twelve are commanded to do. They're all going out, they're all doing these things, and yet Judas's ability to do these things is not a marker of spiritual health. We know that in the end, he is unfaithful, he falls away. Any other examples? Uh, in Acts, what chapter of Acts? Acts 19, the sons of Sceva. You say Sceva, I say Sceva. <laughs> and they're at least able... They were at least able, able to address the evil spirits. They are called Jewish itinerant exorcists. Oh, and they took to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over the, those who had evil spirits, and it doesn't work because the demons evidently aren't moved by that. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And so I think we can take from this that these Jewish exorcists are not faithful at the very least. I haven't considered that one, but that may be another example we yet have. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Yes, absolutely. And one interesting example is King Saul. Um, when you look at 1 Samuel 10, Saul prophesies. And there comes to be a saying known among the people at that time, is, is Saul also among the prophets? And yet his ability to prophesy 
does not show that all is well with his soul. So with all these examples, we, we can see this axiom kind of play out, that natural talent, even ability to do supernatural things, does not mean that it is all well with the person's soul. I'd like to turn to Matthew 7 and kind of walk through this. We'll begin in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do, do also for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And especially in this last section, these men, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? I don't think we have to read this as them being disingenuous, thinking they're lying to the Lord thinking that they're pulling the wool over his eyes, saying we prophesied when we didn't prophesy, and we cast out demons when we didn't cast out demons, but that they may have genuinely done these things. And yet it was no indicator of the inward status of the soul. And just to ask the question, what kind of people are being portrayed here? If we have kinds of people as like, you have nominal Uh, affiliation with the church or you have zealous affiliation with God's people, what kind of people are these? The zealous. It's been well said multiple times that the repetition of Lord, Lord would indicate a fervency on their part. That these are people that, like if we use modern vernacular, they're in church every Sunday at every opportunity. Anytime the doors are open, they're here always willing to participate, always willing to be involved. And yet, because they have not dealt rightly with the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, depart from Me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. Just to pause for a moment, what do we do with this information? What would be a good thing to do with this information at this juncture? Preach the gospel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Not necessarily. And right. And what I what I want to get at, like from the beginning, talking about this being the priority of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're commanded to do acts of service. We should do them. But we get so we get in such dangerous waters with acts of service when we are not prioritizing pressing into Christ in prayer and in the Word. There's so many pitfalls. So, yeah, let's go here. Let's go to 1 Timothy 3. And you've, we've gone over these before. The qualifications for elders, the qualifications for deacons. As you scan over these, just look at the qualifications for elder for now. How many of these qualifications deal with talent or the giftedness of the candidate? The ability of the candidate. Not a lot is the right answer. <laughs> um, we have verse 2 where he's able to teach. That would be a qualification based on ability. You could possibly talk about verses 4 through 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping the children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You can possibly talk about that as a skill based qualification. But what do the overwhelming number of qualifications deal with? Character. Are you a man that's growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Or are you not? And if you're not, you're not qualified to be an elder. When we look at deacons, how many of them, how many of these qualifications could be looked at as a evaluation of talent or ability? Not many. <laughs> Right. I, I look at verse 10. Let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There seems to be some kind of evaluation process on the ability of the deacon to do the work. Verse 12, you have the same qualification with elders, manage, managing their children and their households well. But the overwhelming number of them are character-based qualifications. Must be dignified, not double-tongued not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. With this, like I, like I already said, we're looking for candidates that are growing in the fruit of the Spirit. There's a large way we can word this. When we look at Galatians 5, when we see the fruit of the Spirit, if we read that, some, some people act as if if we read what the fruit of the Spirit are, we might see administrative talent as a fruit of the Spirit. Outstanding communication skills as a fruit of the Spirit. Or being the best babysitter in the church is a fruit of the Spirit. Or having the best casserole recipe is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what we find. 
You find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. These are what we must have to serve faithfully and to serve well. Just some considerations. Um, Last year, one of the most popular podcasts in the world, it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I don't know if any of you listened to it. Had varying degrees of usefulness, but what it did show was what we're talking about today. That natural talent is not a show of spiritual sanctification. Mars Hill is a church in Seattle, Washington. Was a church in Seattle, Washington. I don't think it exists anymore. But it rose on the talent of the pastor, who was a very effective communicator, very zealous, very strong-willed. God did do good things through his ministry. But that didn't mean that it was well with his soul. That it was good with his status before God. And the church fell apart because of his arrogance, because of very open sin. Part of it, like, you know, you write a best-selling book, but it's only a bestseller because you use the church's money to buy thousands of copies. Things like that. It's pretty obviously deceptive. We have examples like that, where we see pastors, they're allowed to go on because of their natural giftedness. But it's obvious to anybody that's close to them that they're not meeting the qualifications. They're not growing in the fruit of the Spirit. Out of Mars Hill, there were a lot of musicians, bands, and this is a whole other thing we've seen over the last several years. Many, many well-known musicians that apostatize. And it's particularly painful to us because we have invested in them more, uh, I don't know what the right word would be, more weight in their value as being a leader of some kind because they're out in front publicly singing songs about Jesus. Yet we know nothing about (laughs) their Bible reading, their, their repentance, their willingness to be to linger with the Lord in prayer. We know nothing about them. And so we just assume because they're out there that these are super Christians doing things that we can't do because we're not super Christians. But it's a wrong assumption on our part. We can't assume these things. One, I, just to bring the point home, like in our, in our own hymnals, Hymn number 133, beautiful, beautiful song, amazing song. All glory be to Christ. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. The writer of these words is now an apostate. He was one of the Mars Hill band leaders. The words are true. Song is amazing, beautiful. But it wasn't an indicator of the author's spiritual status. It didn't guarantee that the one who wrote these words and put them together and put the music together really knew the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we come again. 
our service does not, is not a source of assurance. Our service cannot be a source of our assurance of others. One of the bands when I was younger, the, the songwriter wrote the lyrics, I am so thankful that I am incapable of doing any good on my own. The song's literally about total depravity, which is not popular in broad evangelicalism. So you think, man, this guy's singing about Calvinist stuff. Like, <laughs> surely he's one of our guys. Surely he's saved. He's an apostate. It's not a guarantee to see these wonderful acts of service. Many of you know the name Joshua Harris. I kissed dating goodbye. Monster book in the 90s. He's now an apostate. Thrust into service because he wrote that book. Thrust into pastorship with no training. Burns out and apostatizes. Now he's walking in pride marches. What does all this mean for us here this morning? Application. You and I both must be careful not to excuse a lack of personal sanctification because of the business of service in this church. This church needs your growth in personal sanctification more than it needs your service. This is one of our great fears with doing a nursery in the church because we've seen in so many churches that there are well-meaning, wonderful, godly women who volunteer to be in the nursery seven out of eight Sundays, but they're not with God's people in the Lord's service, in the Lord's Day service. And so it becomes a great temptation to see that in place of my sanctification, I'm serving. And this means it's well with my soul. And it's very dangerous. To my shame, in my previous pastoral experience, I had a man very zealous in groundskeeping and all maintenance on the building. Did a wonderful job with all these things, but he said, I don't need to come to Sunday school. I've earned my break. You can see right there his thinking. His service means he doesn't need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to my shame, I didn't challenge him. Many reasons why I didn't, but not good ones. But the point, your service is not a replacement of growth and sanctification. It cannot be. You and I both must be extremely careful to not pull assurance of salvation before God from our works of service. I know a man who, d- who would do free car maintenance for pastors. And he took, he took great joy in doing so. And it's a wonderful service. Car maintenance is expensive. And a lot of pastors I know are like me, know nothing about cars, want to know nothing about cars, <laughs> would rather ignore that whole reality and let someone else take care of it. It's a wonderful service. But this man, when confronted about his view of salvation, all but denied Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Now salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He wanted to see his work in car maintenance as either maintaining his salvation or earning his salvation. 
And I'm talking about evangelicals. I'm not talking about Catholics. These are people that go to an evangelical church all the days of their life. We have to guard ourselves in this. And I assume, maybe wrongly, none of us in this room would ever be that bold. But this, this error can be much more subtle than that. Where we would never openly deny salvation by grace alone. But we feel like, I have to do this. I have to serve in this way, otherwise Jesus is not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. In order to hear, well done, and good and faithful servant, I have to earn it by doing things. It's very easy for that subtle way of thinking to get us off course. As long as we're talking about songs, my faith has found a resting place. You have the beautiful line, I need no other argument. Or I have no, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Rock of ages. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Nothing. Someone asks you the question, you're before Jesus, why should I let you into my heaven? Your hours of service in the church have nothing to do with it. Your hours of service to the people of the church have nothing to do with it. I babysat 18 kids every day while cooking all the food for all the church functions and cleaned the church every week. It has nothing to do with it. You should let me in, Jesus, because you've bought, my, you bought me body and soul. My chains are gone. You've set me free. On the basis of your righteousness and yours alone, can I expect to enter? You and I must be willing to lovingly confront each other if it becomes clear that our acts of service are being allowed to replace growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Part of our duty to one another is that we have the opportunity and the obligation to poke, to meddle a little bit. How is it with your soul? You're very busy. We thank God for what you're doing. But how are you doing? Caleb and I need that. Caleb and Caleb and I need that. (laughs) And anyone you see in a position of service to this church needs that. And we're so tempted to have this, like we talked about with these musicians, we think of them as super-Christians. We're so tempted to think of anybody in a place of leadership as other and untouchable. Thou shalt not touch God's anointed. We don't need to think that way. It's dangerous and not helpful. This is not an either-or, finally. Last point. We don't want to get to where, well, I'm comfortable not serving because I'm not reading and I'm not praying. And that's okay. (laughs) We're commanded to serve. And so we must seek opportunities to serve. And so the priority of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ just means 
As much as we ought to pursue serving, we need to pursue more growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no coasting. Coasting is backsliding, just at a slower speed. Are there any comments or questions about anything we've talked about this morning? Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that would be most easy for us to uh, kind of find our assurance on would be our doctrine of theology. Mm-hmm. Right? Because we know the doctrine of grace, the doctrine of grace, and we have a good stance on election. But like yeah. the guy you were talking about, Andrew, yeah. who saw grace alone, yeah. which is just phenomenal. Cool. He's as, that song's as good as In Christ Alone. It's amazing. And you're right, like even me talking about it, like the band was Cademan's Call and the song they did on that was basically about total depravity. You're just automatically like, man, these guys are singing songs about Calvinist doctrine. They just, why would I even doubt for a moment <laughs> that there's anything wrong with these guys' spirituality? But it, it's not a... We can't think that way. The Bible doesn't tell us to think that way. Did you read First Corinthians 15 and 17 today? No, I didn't. I, I just think it was a, a key passage to everything you talked about, brother. Uh, verses 1 through 3, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but yes. I yes. love, right? Grace, yes, yes. Grace, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, but if I have, and if I have all faith, so to remove mountains, I have not love, I am nothing. Yes. Yes. And you're right, especially that verse 3 is extremely striking when we're considering what we're considering this morning. If I give away all that I have, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Yeah. And yeah, we, we hear about somebody martyred, super Christian. So, yeah. Caleb? Yes. Um, in that sense, because I'm thinking about the qualifications for deacons at the end, those who serve well, gain good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith. Yes. As you read the service, yes. when done in faith, and, yes. and that's what you know, he's pursuing growth in faith and growth in knowledge and with God Yes. through the service. Right? Yes. Right. And that's true. That's true. And when you look at Hebrews 10, you have that great warning for those that continue to sin. But then he goes on to assure them that he thinks better of the ones he's writing to. Let me see if I can find it. But recall former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's saying much the same thing. When he's, when he's wanting to assure these people, he does point to what they've done. But we always have to have the relationship right. What we do has to pour out of our relationship with Christ and Christ in us. It can never be a substitute. And we're so often tempted to make it a substitute. Yeah. Yes. They were still commanded to sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think there is a good connection there. That he he desires mercy and not sacrifice. He desires the inward change, the inward submission to God, more than the outward service. Yes. I do it because of love. Yes. Would that be fair? Yeah. And that's why, as much as I'm trying to warn against the substitution aspect, we can't see these as opposed. But we have to be extremely wary of our thinking about service. Because it can get really toxic very quickly. Jacob. Yeah. Right. Well, and I would, I would argue like with those particular examples, Hillsong's capable of writing, and they do write some songs that are not actively bad, but none of them are as doctrinally rich as "All Glory Be to Christ." And so we can say pretty safely, I don't think any of these songs, even if they are fine. They're not really what we want in our service. They're not going to be as beneficial as they could be. In the case of all glory be to Christ, as long as we understand that we don't give a pass to the author and assume his spiritual uh, state and look to him as a leader, I think it is possible to use the song because there is the song is nothing but beautiful truth. And you mentioned it as well. Like, do you want to talk? I don't. I was just going to say that we, you know, we sometimes think that Balaam was prostituting. Yes. You know, that's true. Um, <clears throat> that's what Caiaphas is prostituting in John 11. Yeah. Even though these young believers. I think that we have to have a balance there, of course. We don't want to just. But I, I think that it can't be absolutely. Yes. Until somebody's dead, we wouldn't feel confident in saying that. Yeah. And ultimate, like in our context, we talk about figuring these things out. We're doing that congregationally. And so, if there was someone that was offended by that hymn because of the author's status, we'd want to talk about it. We'd be open to talking about it. So.
Yeah. Like Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So you could say, like, Dustin Kenser is not really deceptive because he's open. He doesn't believe in God anymore. Right. Right. Let's pray. Heavenly.